All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7 in your Bibles. Last week, we read what might be considered the very pinnacle of Jesus' pre-resurrection miraculous works upon this earth. It began with the healing of the centurion servant, responding in faith to Jesus, though he was a Gentile man. Jesus saying, I have not found such great faith, no, not in Israel. And then it continued with what we might call the, the pinnacle of Jesus' miracles, the raising of the widow of Nain's son back to life. Not because she had asked him, not implicitly for her faith, or at least the text does not tell us so, but rather because he had compassion upon her. What a wonderful lesson about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the word spread about this quite quickly, and as our King James translators described it, it likely turned quickly into a rumor that his prophet, that the prophet that, that was going around was not only healing people and casting out demons, but in fact he had actually rose the dead back to life. And we finished last time with the disciples of John going to John, who at this point is in prison, and telling him these things. We know that John is in prison from Luke because we, we read about it in Luke 3, verse 20. It had said that um, John had been put in prison and there really hasn't been much else said about it. We won't hear much else about John other than um, that he will be beheaded in Luke. In Matthew and in Mark, we read far more about it. We'll talk about that next week. Our message will be focused on that next week. But in Luke, we really don't read much more then simply that we know John is in prison and he's not dead yet because his disciples come to him and they told him the things that Jesus was doing. And that's where we pick up here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says this in verses 19 and 20. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Here we find two disciples of John, having gone and told their master these things, coming back to Jesus and asking him this very particular question, Are you he that should come, or should we be looking for another? Now, this is significant for several reasons. And reading these questions that the disciples of John give to Jesus should cause our mind perhaps to go in several directions. Firstly, we define what they mean by he that should come. And this is important. This is going to take us down a little bit of a rabbit trail this evening. But I think it's a rabbit trail that will be profitable for us to go down because it's going to give us some context into exactly what Jesus was being asked here. This phrase, he that should come, is a messianic phrase. And this messianic phrase is most deeply rooted in a promise that God gave to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15. Uh, we read in verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. In this prophecy, we find a promise. Moses writing, and he says that God will raise up to thee, to the nation, a prophet. And notice the characteristics of this prophet. He will come from their midst. He will be of their brethren, and he will be like unto Moses. And the Bible says, you will listen to him. This man, he would be like Moses, one who spoke directly to God, then relayed the commandments of God to the people. He would be a direct representative of God. So, just as with Moses, if he says it, it has the weight of divine decree. Just like when it, if it came from Moses, it actually came from God, so too it would be with this prophet. But in verses 16 to 18 of Deuteronomy 18, we find more insight into this. The Bible says, according to all that thou desirest. So, if I may go back in the context for a moment, I'll read verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, 
in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, that would be the Lord talking to Moses, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. This request of Israel was made in Exodus 20. They had come to the mountain of Sinai, and in Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am going to descend and speak to the people with my own mouth. So he descends in fire from the Mount Sinai, and he audibly, like the sound of trumpets, gives the nation the Ten Commandments. And the nation was struck with such paralyzing fear at the sound of God's voice, at the glory of the Lord. And of course, they didn't see him. They only saw his glory. They saw the fire. They, they felt the earth shaking. And they were so paralyzed with fear that in verse 19 of Exodus 20, they begged Moses. They said, Moses, never, ever, ever, ever again, please never again let God speak to us himself. You speak to God, then you tell us what God said, and we promise we will regard your words as if they are coming from God himself, and we will obey your words as if they are the words of God. We will trust you to be a representative of God. Can you see then the significance when God says, I will raise up a prophet like unto you? Can you see how this, this, this uh, promise is leading to The messianic promise leading to Messiah himself. And it's interesting, is it not, that God says in Deuteronomy 18 that he was very pleased with them for making this request. They say, Moses, please never let God speak to us himself again. Please be an intermediary. Please, we will trust you implicitly to say what God says. And God says, I like this. Why? Because what Israel has just done is they have positioned their hearts to be willing to receive the word of God by God's prophet. And so when God raises up a prophet, when God raises up a prophet, priest, and king, when God raises up Messiah, Israel has already had precedent in their history to say, if this man is the representative of God, if he speaks with God face to face, if he is the friend of God, and God has chosen him as, as a representative to us, then we will, we will take his words as the words of God. We will listen to his words and we will obey them as if they are coming from the the voice of God himself. Do you see why God was pleased? God was pleased because in this promise that Israel made to him, they were setting themselves up to receive the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, of the Messiah himself. So when the disciples of John come to Jesus and they say, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. They're asking whether or not he is Messiah. And understanding this should actually stir in us even more questions. After all, John was the self-proclaimed herald of the Messiah. And I say self-proclaimed not because others didn't. In fact, we have on record, we studied it in Luke chapter 1, that Gabriel himself came to John's father, Zacharias, and said, this child will be the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of the Highest. Was this not, was John not the man who said, when he saw Jesus coming into the wilderness, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Was this not the man who declared that the very shoes of Jesus, he was not worthy to unloose them? Why is it then that he now has doubts? Well, again, the fact that the disciples are coming to Jesus with this particular reference. They didn't say, are you the Messiah? They said, are you he that should come? Are you the prophet that God would raise up like unto Moses is telling? And the reason why it is so telling is because if you've been following along in our series, you know that Jesus has done some things that have challenged the common understanding of the, of the day in regard to the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, as these disciples went back to John, it would not necessarily surprise us if they told John he is 
contradicting the law of Moses. He is challenging the law of Moses. Now we know that that's not the case. We know that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. We know that Jesus came to reclaim the law from the misinterpretations and the misguidance of the, of the uh, religious leaders who had perverted it. And we know that to be the case. But many people that were there did not even to Jesus' disciples. They were confused. They were confused at Jesus, why Jesus was doing these things. When Jesus sat down with, to eat with publicans and sinners, the Pharisees went to Jesus' disciples and said, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? And they probably went to the disciples of Jesus and not to Jesus himself because the disciples of Jesus probably looked just as uncomfortable as the Pharisees and Sadducees at what was going on. And they saw, it's kind of like a, a shark to blood, right? They saw the vulnerability in the disciples because the disciples were looking around saying, I don't really, I'm not comfortable with this. And they said, why is your master doing this? And of course, Jesus answers. And so it would not surprise us if the disciples of John had some problems with this as well. And that John heard these problems. And so he's coming and he's saying, look, if you are the Messiah, then you are the prophet that would be raised up like unto Mo- like Moses. And if you're the prophet like Moses, then why are you challenging the law? Imagine then with me these disciples of John. They're listening to all that Jesus says. They're seeing him sit with publicans and sinners. They watch him pluck corn on the Sabbath day. And then he tells them this, this uh, idea of new wine and old, uh, old bottles and new uh, patches on old garments and that there's something new coming and you can't put something new on an, on an old garment, a new patch on an old garment or new wine into old bottles because it's just going to break it all up. He's doing great things, but he isn't what they expected him to be. He isn't focusing on overthrowing Rome. He's not talking about political overthrow. As a matter of fact, he's spending all of his time focusing upon the problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees in their faith. He's spending all of his time pinpointing the hypocrisy of the very religious leaders of our nation. And John, having heard this report, was confused. Now, we'll talk next week about some other elements of John, too. He's sitting in prison. And one of the most powerful women in Israel is trying to get him killed. That's a pretty discouraging state. And if you've ever been in a discouraging state, you know that you might be susceptible to deeper discouragement as things seem to pile on, right? So he begins to wonder whether all of this can be true. He is the herald of Messiah. Jesus is the one, but maybe I'm missing something here. Now, in a stroke of, we might, per se, we might say, irony, we read in verse 21, that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. It's interesting. We read many that were blind he gave sight. We don't read of that many blind men explicitly in the Gospels who received sight, but here many of them did. Who knows how many blind men, who knows how many great wonders Jesus did that are not recorded in the scriptures. John tells us that, that there are many, many things that were not recorded. Jesus responds to them in verses 22 and 23. The Bible says, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Don't miss the importance of these words in light of all the context of the book. First, remember in Luke 6, we spent time considering Jesus' teaching about the good tree and that a good tree brings forth good fruit. You don't get bad tree out of a, uh, a bad fruit out of a good tree. You don't get good fruit out of a bad tree. Jesus tells them, look around you, see what's happening here. Not only that the kingdom of heaven is actually being, being created here, right? I am healing. I am, I am casting out demons. All of those things that in the kingdom age you would not expect demons, you would expect people to not have these infirmities, uh, you would expect that in the kingdom age I am showing you evidences of the kingdom, but as I'm doing so, I'm, I'm not doing so in my name, I'm doing so in the name of the true and living God. I'm doing so in the name of Jehovah God. 
I am pointing to Him and I'm doing wonderful works. I'm preaching the gospel to those who need it and I'm doing wonderful works. What in me does not validate itself as truth? Second, remember what Jesus said in Luke 6.27. He says, I say unto you which hear. Much of Jesus' ministry, though open to all and heard by all, was only received by a small number, those who were willing to listen, willing to believe, willing to trust and obey. Jesus tells John the works, the message, the teachings, the lifestyle. It's open to be seen by all. I'm not hiding in the corners. I'm not hiding what I'm doing. My message isn't hidden. My, my works aren't hidden. What you see is what you get. And what you see is a man who is doing great works in the name of Jehovah God. And so he says, blessed are they who are not offended. That word in the Greek literally meaning to trip up or to stumble. Who do not stumble at these evidences of truth just because they're not packaged the way you expect them. And we'll, in, in a couple of weeks, we'll explore this more in Luke 6, excuse me, 7 verses 31 and following. We continue in verse 24. The Bible says, in the messengers of John, when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto this, the people concerning John. And he says this, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. John's messengers depart. And you, if you can see perhaps with your uh, sanctified imagination, thinking with your mind's eye on this circumstance, you, you might think of a situation, okay, everybody knew that John heralded the Messiah, that he claimed to be that, the voice crying in the wilderness, making the way straight for the Lord. Everybody knew he claimed that. Everybody knew he pointed to Jesus Christ and said, this is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That he was pointing out Jesus as Messiah. Everybody knew that. And now John came back to question whether or not Jesus was really the one. That That's kind of an awkward situation, right? And so Jesus begins to ask questions. He says, what did you go out to see when you went out to see John? When John was in the wilderness, before he was thrown in prison, and he was doing this preaching and baptizing, what did you go out there to see? He's, and then he asks hypothetically or rhetorically, did you go out to see a reed shaken with the wind? The idea there, a reed that, that would blow with the winds of doctrine, a man of no principle, no conviction, a man who didn't understand the, the, the word of God, and so he started making it up for himself. Did you go out there just to see a guy that was that was unsteady, that that had no that had no loyalty to the Old Testament? Just making stuff up now? Is that what you went out to see? Rhetorically, the answer is of course no. And then he asks another question in verse 25. But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Did you go out there to see an influential man, a man of, of, of costly apparel, a man of power and of wealth? Is that why you went out there to see him? Because he was a man of power and wealth, and so you thought you should follow him. Well, he says, here's the thing. John was in the wilderness. They which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately, they are in king's courts. They're not in the wilderness. So you didn't go out there to see a man making up his own religion blown like a reed in the wind. You didn't go out there to see a man just because of his wealth, a man of great nobility and influence. Well, who was John? Verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, what went ye out to see, a prophet? He says, yea, that is the answer. You went out to see a prophet. And I say unto you, much more than just a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. On the contrary, Jesus says, this is not just a prophet. This is the prophet who, uh, who is written of in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The messenger, this is he. The one who would prepare the way before the Lord. And then the Lord, whom they seek, would suddenly come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom they delight. I make note here just in passing very quickly that you'll notice two different 
writings of Lord in our King James Bibles, you have capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then at the end of the verse you have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the King James Bible, every time you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, you're looking at the word Adon or Adonai. Adon meaning Lord, Adonai, my Lord. And that is a word that's used of God, it's used of kings, it's used of owners, it's used of husbands. It's a word simply meaning a sovereign or a leader or a master uh, of any in any context. But when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you, it is always, in our King James Bibles, Jehovah God, the covenant name of God. And you can know that because our King James translators did a wonderful job of translating consistently. And so whenever you see that, you can know the word behind it and you can know how Perhaps God is being addressed. When you see Lord God, and it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then capital G, capital O, capital D, well, see, Lord was already taken with Adon. And so Jehovah is made all caps, capital G, or, uh, is, is made into God, but with all caps, capital G, capital O, capital D. So Lord God, lowercase, uh, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then capital G, capital O, capital D, is Adonai, or Adon, Jehovah. And that's how those would be combined. So just a little helpful hint there if you're reading in your King James Bible. And that brings, a, uh, not that, but this passage brings another interesting study. We talked early in the book of Luke. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, we talked, uh, we had a message about dual fulfillment. And dual fulfillment is when there's one prophecy in the scripture that takes on two Fulfillments. There's an early or a minor fulfillment, and then there's a later or a fuller fulfillment. And you'll find that that is likely the case with this promise that Elijah, that the messenger of the covenant, would come. That is, Jesus says John is Elijah, and Gabriel said John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, but John himself, when they asked him if he was Elijah, he said, no, I am not Elijah, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. John didn't think he was Elijah, but Jesus said he was Elijah, but then Jesus also said... That Elijah, when he comes, he would restore all things, and John did not do that. We see in this a dual fulfillment. That John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to usher in Jesus' first advent, and then at Jesus' second advent, we would expect, from a a general um, interpretive standpoint, that there will be a second fulfillment of this prophecy, that a second Elijah, probably the true Elijah, uh, who, by the way, has never died, right? He was translated into heaven, so... uh, He would make sense that he might come back and finish off whatever ministry he has. That the true Elijah or the the one prophesied of as Elijah will come and will finish up that ministry as a dual fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm going to move uh, past that point. In, in, uh, I, I was going to give you a little bit more about dual fulfillment, but I did pre- preach a message not too long ago about it, and we are going to run out of time. If you want to go back and look at that message, it's in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. So I believe it's the first message, I, uh, the second message I preached, excuse me, after the book sermon, but you can certainly go back and find it. Luke 1, 1 through 20, we talk about dual fulfillment in prophecy, what it is, why we believe it to be valid. And this would have given you a little bit more perspective but I think that it might actually muddy up where we're going with this message if I pursue it. So I'm just not going to go there this evening. Uh, Let's move on to verse 28 here. The Bible says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not greater, a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And then he has this very curious phrase, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John was a man, susceptible to confusion, the confusion of men. Indeed, we'll talk about next week his discouragement, his confusion, his fear, his doubts. And how not only he, but also the man who uh, he had come in the spirit and power of. Uh, Elijah himself was a man who experienced fears and doubts during his ministry as well. Jesus tells them that this man, he was a prophet, and that born among women, there had never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And that's an interesting statement also, isn't it? What did he mean by this? See, because Elijah and Elisha, they'd done great miracles. John didn't do miracles. John didn't raise a child to life. 
John didn't cause an axe head to float. So John didn't do miracles like Elijah and Elisha. And he didn't have great writings. We don't read the writings of John the Baptist today. The John and the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John we have in our Bibles. Those were not written by John the Baptist. Those were written by John the Evangelist. So he's not like a, a David or a Daniel or an Isaiah or an Ezekiel or a Jeremiah who have great writings that touch us today. So by what measure is John the greatest of the prophets? And this is important for us to understand. God's idea of greatness is not the same as ours. God was not gauging greatness here upon the magnitude of efforts or the abilities even which God gave to men. He wasn't given the most abilities of any prophet. He wasn't given perhaps even the greatest privileges of any prophet as far as um, power is concerned or effectiveness of ministry, perhaps we might even say. But the message that John was privileged to deliver was the greatest message a prophet had ever been given. The position that John had as the forerunner to Messiah, as the one who would pave the way, who would make the path straight, was the greatest ministry any prophet had ever had. And by that measure, John is the greatest of the prophets. Now keep that in mind, because when we talk about this next phrase, which we will do in our application, that is going to come back to be very important. Because here, we find Jesus say, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Any man who is the very least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now this is not saying John had no part in the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is simply stating, as we have observed on many occasions, that John as the final Old Testament prophet was the final of God's messengers to look ahead to something much greater. Something which they did not get to taste or be a part of, but which as they looked on the horizon and they looked toward it, said that is going to be something so special. John and the prophets looked ahead to the indwelling Holy Spirit, looked ahead to the power of God in you through His Spirit, looked ahead to the church and the power of the church, that the gates of hell could not prevail against it, that Christ would build His church, that He would be the head and we would be the body. And they looked, uh, and, and, and they didn't look ahead to all that because much of that was a mystery, but they looked ahead to these things, the glory that should come following the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they longed for it but they knew that it wasn't for them. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us this. We'll explore that more in our application. As Jesus continues, he said, uh, we, we read this in verses 29 to 30. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. What Luke is doing here, as he writes these words, is he's drawing a comparison between those who were listening to Jesus, having previously submitted themselves to the baptism of John, and those who were listening to Jesus, having refused the baptism of John. Now first, notice that this contrast is drawn along this sharp line of having listened to Jesus, but either having or having not been baptized by John. You had the people and the publicans on one side, and you had the lawyers and the scribes on the other, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the lawyers on the other. Now this was not to say that only the publicans and the people could accept the, the message while the Pharisees and the lawyers could not. It's not saying uh, that. Our, our Heavenly Father, Jesus and John, none of them judged men by their earthly affiliations. Jesus did not prefer the publicans and the people to the Pharisees and the lawyers by default. But this observation is meant to describe a general difference between these two groups. That those in power, who were by default interested in maintaining power, were naturally resistant to the ministry of John, and Jesus. And by the way, their ministry said the same thing. And that's what Luke is trying to point out here. That Jesus' ministry, those who received 
G- John received Jesus. Those who did not receive John did not receive Jesus. Why? Because John and Jesus were saying the same thing. John and Jesus were saying the same thing. They sure looked different. They sure went about it a different way, but they pointed to the same truth. And so those that submitted themselves to the baptism of John very naturally recognized the truths of Jesus. And they did so because they accepted John's message and John's message and Jesus's message were the same. Those who heard John's message and identified John's message, but said, that's not for me. They rejected John's message. They rejected John's baptism. And in doing so, they positioned themselves to reject Jesus's message as well. Why? Because Jesus and John were saying the same thing. And why did they reject John's message and thus as by extension, Jesus's message. Well, one of the reasons and what Luke is pointing out here is one of the reasons is position. That those in power who by default are interested in maintaining power are naturally resistant to John and Jesus's ministry because their ministry was one of humility. That those who were self-righteous and who were interested in maintaining their self-righteousness, justifying themselves were resistant to the ministries of John and Jesus because their ministries preached repentance. On the contrary, men of little power, men of little esteem, men of little wealth, men uh, who uh, go through this life, we might say, if we can put it this way, and it might be the wrong way to put it, but if they go through life more normally, they understand bit, a bit better their failings. They understand that they, they are not self-justified, that they are sinners, and they understand that because they know their hearts. They're not, they're not fooling themselves like many religious people do. Or they go through life and they haven't had everything handed to them on a, on a platter, and they don't feel as though life can supply all of their needs. And so they don't live in this self-sufficient bubble, and they recognize that, that things can touch them, that, that there are problems that, that can't be solved with money. They're more receptive to truth. Because they, I, if we can say it this way, they have less to lose. And Paul said the same thing. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Like Jesus and Luke and John, Paul is by no means saying that wise, mighty, or noble men cannot be saved, but what he's saying is that there is an extra hurdle for them. There's an extra stumbling block that lays in their path because they feel secure in themselves. They don't want to be told that they have needs that they cannot fulfill. They don't want to be told that they have problems that they cannot solve. Whether it's self-righteousness or whether it's uh, ability or whether it's money or whether it's power, they don't want to be told that it's not enough. They don't want to be told that there's a God in heaven who has all money so you don't need to be spending your time and effort on this money and your money doesn't make you special because God has all the wealth of the world and God can provide it to whoever he will. You don't want to be told that you don't have the ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get yourself to heaven on your own. You don't want to be told that your self-righteousness is not enough and no matter how hard you try to be a good person and no matter how many things you've rejected and how many ways you have sacrificed in order to be a good person, it's not enough to get you to heaven. And people don't want to be told that and those people are naturally less disposed to accept the truth. And so, yes, read the Gospels, read Paul, read James, and you'll find that the rich man is far less likely to be saved. And it's far more likely, in the words of our writer, that the rich man will reject the counsel of God against themselves. They will deny the things that they need most, being convinced that they don't need it at all. And so in their denial of their need, they refuse to be baptized of John, And that same faithlessness carried over into Jesus' ministry as it would because they had the same message. And this leads us to several important points. And my first point, I'm actually going to divert a little bit. I'm going to start diverted, and then I'm going to bring it back. So we'll bring it back to more direct application. But first, I'm going to... um, I want to make this point. Number one, don't get confused about the nature nature of Jesus' advent, whether first... Or last. And I want to make this point almost as a side point. The Jews were confused about Jesus' first advent. The leaders of the Jews were what we would call today 
Dominion theologians. They were men who believed that what they had to do, what their responsibility was, was to make their nation so righteous in themselves that they had created a completely righteous nation, a nation completely subservient to the law, and in doing so, then Jesus, then, not Jesus, then the Messiah, who is Jesus, but they didn't think that, then Messiah would come and rule over the righteous kingdom that they had created. And Jesus came and he told them, that's not what I'm about. I'm not here because you're so righteous that I'm ready to establish the kingdom for you. I'm here to show you how far afield you have gone, how you have fallen into self-righteousness, how you've erected this law as your God, and you have pursued this law as the, 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 the object rather than God as the object of your faith. In other words, these Jews believed that it all depended on them. Now, God had chosen to use them throughout history, but it didn't depend on them. And God was not waiting for them to make the world a righteous place so that he could come and rule over it. He was going to come and establish a kingdom and establish righteousness. And we can read that all throughout the Old Testament. But they missed this. And there's many in our culture who have missed this as well. We know that Jesus' second coming will be very different from his first. His first coming, he came as the Lamb of God. His second coming will be as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We know that we have been called as his church to occupy till he comes. And like Israel in the Old Testament, we have been made God's people in the New Testament, called by God to carry his work out in this world. We are the bride of Christ. It is our calling to win the world, to go and to make disciples of all nations. But just like with the Jews, we can get confused and begin thinking that it is our job to Christianize this world rather than simply deliver the message to the world. That it's our job to make this world what it should be for God. And then when it is what it ought to be, then Christ can come and rule and reign over it. That it's the church's job to bring in the kingdom and to create the kingdom and then God will rule over the kingdom. And this is a philosophy that is still around today called, which we would call dominion theology. Dominion theology. And like the Jews, they believe that Christ's kingdom bears the weight of or, excuse me, that Christ's church bears the weight of Christ's kingdoms on its shoulder. They believe because Adam was given dominion over creation that it is the job of God's people, and in this age that would be the church, to bring the world under the banner of Christ. That somehow the church, by Christianizing culture, governments, and thus the world, will usher in the kingdom of Christ. That God is waiting for us to make the world a a better place, to make the world Christian, and then He can come and rule over it. Now, there are several modern-day proponents of this way of thinking, dominion theology, and they couldn't be more different in respect to the majority of their doctrinal positions. There's a Reformed theology group called Christian Reconstructionists that believe this. That you need to reestablish the theonomy where governments rule by the, by God's law alone. You reestablish the Mosaic law. We, you could see this back in the early colonies in the time of the Puritans and the Calvinists, uh, with their church state systems. We could see this, um, certainly we wouldn't lock them in with the Calvinists, but you can see this, of course, in the Catholic Church, where they believe that it's the job of, of governments to submit themselves under the church, under the Pope. And so for, for a thousand years, <laughs> um, the kingdoms of this world, of the Western world, had submitted themselves to the authority of the Pope. And when they, began to diverge through the Reformation and they began to break away from the church, the church started the Counter-Reformation and the order of the Jesuits was formed and the whole point of the Jesuits was to go into nations and to destabilize nations and to bring them back under the power of the Pope. It's no small thing today 
when you understand that the Pope that we have right now is a Jesuit and that this is the first time in Catholic history where a Jesuit has also become a Pope. Those were two things that were never supposed to mix. That's something for you to study if you ever want to study it. So you have a Reformed group called the Christian Reconstructionists. You have the Catholic Church that has this view. You also have a a charismatic or a Pentecostal view called Kingdom Now Theology, which is just a fancy name for a form of dominion theologians. They believe that Satan is in control of various dominions. Uh, He is in control of the world and that God has called for the church to take back dominion of areas from Satan. And so there's the dominion of the arts. There's the dominion of um, education. There's the dominion of science. And they're all being taken over by Satan and that God wants us as his people to reclaim them for Christ, to reclaim the arts for Christ, to reclaim science for Christ, to reclaim education for Christ. And as we reclaim these dominions, eventually we'll reclaim the dominions and we will conquer Satan because the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. And then as we conquer Satan, then Christ can come in and and um, bring about his kingdom. And this kingdom now theology has its fingerprints on several different forms of charismatic theology. Theology, the latter rain movement, the new apostolic reformation, which is led by, uh, which was founded at least by C. Peter Wagner, who's a, a very uh, important figurehead in charismatic theology. And um, they're wrong. This is not what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying everything they say is wrong. I'm saying this is wrong. Dominion theology is not sound doctrine. Now, one of the most prevalent places where we've seen this today is with Glenn Beck. And, uh, of course, he's a New Age Mormon and uh, has attempted for years to, to convince the church, which is becoming far more ecumenical, right, and a universalist, globalist-type church idea that Mormons are just Christians like any other Christian, even though they deny the core tenets of the Christian faith. And he has been working with men such as David Barton, who is a a major Dominion theologian, Kirk Cameron, to bring about this idea of unification under this common um, banner. But the point is that you Christianize government. That's what they want to do. They want to bring back that religious right. They want to bring back that Christian ideal. And it's not wrong to have Christians in government. But it's a whole different ballgame when you talk about having a Christian government, a church-state system. Jesus does not need you, and he does not need me, to establish his kingdom. He's chosen to use us. He will bless us according to faithfulness. But you know, as Paul teaches about the things that are to come, he does not teach us that things are going to keep getting better and better and better and better until Christ comes because we've established the kingdom for him. Much to the contrary, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of that which of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, he says, turn away. Far from taking dominion, Paul seems to indicate that things are going to get worse. In the last days, perilous times shall come. He goes on to warn in verses 12 and 13 of 2 Timothy 3. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. As Paul seeks to establish what will be the hallmark of the Christian church throughout the centuries, he does not say that the hallmark of the Christian church throughout the centuries will be continued reclamation of culture until the world has been Christianized, until dominion has been established. He says that the hallmark of the Christian church throughout the centuries will be persecution, suffering, and martyrdom. We sit in our comfortable chairs in our climate-controlled building, and we can say what we will, and we do not fear quite yet government persecution for it. And as we do so, we feel distanced from this concept. But make no mistake, Christians around the world are the, without, without question, the most persecuted 
group in the world. And that's to be expected. So don't get confused about the nature of Jesus' advent, whether first or last. Let's bring it back to the text, however, and let's make this second point. We have four points. Our second point, truth is the standard by which all things must be judged and all loyalties must be formed. When the followers of John came and questioned Jesus, Jesus stated, you see for yourself what I'm doing. You can see for yourself that which I am doing. They may not have understood his message. They may not have understood what he was doing. But they could see what he was doing. They could hear what he was preaching. So confused were all of his followers, in fact, that even after Jesus died and rose again, they said, are you now going to bring about your kingdom? When is all this stuff going to happen? They were confused from beginning to end. Until the Spirit came and taught them all things. But they followed Jesus even in their confusion. Even when Jesus had to rebuke Peter and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, because Peter did not understand what Jesus was trying to tell him about him having to suffer and die. Even through all of this, they continued to follow Jesus, not because they understood everything that he said, but because he bore the unmistakable marks of truth. And when our loyalty is truth, then we will go where the truth leads us and we will stand on firm ground, that house that the wise man built. On a rock. And this is why the Word of God is so important, because it is our exclusive source of absolute truth. You know, we live in a post truth age, an age which deems truth to be subjective and subservient, not to facts, not to anything objective, but truth is subservient to feelings, right? That's what we live in. We live in an age where truth is subject to feelings, where if I feel that it's bad, then it's bad, and you need to stop doing what you're doing if I feel that it's bad, because that means you shouldn't be doing it. That if I say something and it hurts my, and it hurts your feelings, that I am now a hating, hateful man, or a bigot, or whatever it might be, because I've said something that hurts your feelings, and I should know better. Because feelings somehow synthesize truth. We have a whole generation now called the millennials, and full disclosure, I'm one of them, who do not regard absolute truth, who do not subject themselves to facts as the basis for truth, but feelings instead as the basis for truth. They've grown up believing that they have privilege of forming their own truth, And if they don't like it, then that's sufficient reason to reject it as truth. It's the generation of participation trophies where there's no objective winner or loser because everybody everybody wins. And so culture is a total mess today. Men can say they're women and rather than us saying, okay, you need help and committing them to a mental institution or bringing them preferably to a pastor for spiritual counseling, they're heralded as courageous and they're lifted up as the forerunners leading us into a new enlightenment. So hundreds of thousands of babies can be killed every year in the name of convenience, disregarding the basic truths of human life and dignity, and rather than bringing the perpetrators to the natural end of a murderer, which is to charge them with a crime. We celebrate them in the streets. We def- they're defended by our politicians and they're called heroes of our culture. Women are so confused about the difference between equity and equality and then they call it feminism. They deny their God-created role. They deny their God-created gifts and limitations. They deny men the privilege of doing what God has called men to do, which is to treat them with honor and respect and to value them. And they deny what that means while still expecting it of us. They won't let us do it, but they demand it of us. And then they get angry when men don't do it. If a person stands upon a truth that another group finds distasteful, he's immediately identified by a number of hateful labels simply because they disagree. We're in a culture of loyalties where a fight can break out and can literally come to blows over brand loyalty. Where an animal being killed is more important than a baby being killed. Where a lion can be killed in Africa and his face can be plastered on the Empire State Building. 
but where hundreds of thousands of babies can be killed and no one even bats an eyelash. We're in an age where politicians are chosen by a standard of the lesser of two evils or by our tribalistic tendencies to just go with whatever side we're on and it doesn't matter what they say or what they do, we're on this side and we will justify their evil to the end simply because it's our brand of evil. And the biggest problem is that most Christians are stuck right in the middle of this. How is it that Christians are so willing to abandon truth? How is it that women are in our pulpits all around this nation, even though the Bible explicitly says that women should not usurp authority over man, should not teach in the church? How is it that divorce is pervasive among Christian churches, even though God's word says that divorce is wrong? How is it that there are battles in mainstream denominations over whether or not to accept the sodomite lifestyle or to accept this transgender lifestyle, even though everything about those lifestyles is actually called in the Bible sexual perversion? How is this possible? Because humans have a strong track record of identifying truth, but then ignoring truth when truth becomes inconvenient. May I encourage you not to be among those that see life through the lenses of your own feelings. Because your feelings and your perspectives are at the mercy of your heart. And Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You trust your heart, you will be trusting something that is actively deceiving you. The Disney generation, follow your heart. We've been teaching our children how to be deceived. This is why we hold the Bible above anything else and everything else in this world. Because the Bible is true. And if we are on its side, then we are on God's side and we can know it every time because it's true. So don't base your actions upon your feelings, upon your perceptions, upon your your opinions. Don't form your worldview on the opinions of others or on the whims of pop culture. Don't allow politicians to tell you what to believe. Allow every opinion, every perception, every action, every intention to be guided by the dictates of absolute truth. This is what's called having a biblical worldview. And if the truth takes you somewhere that you did not expect, follow it. But only follow it as long as it is the truth of God's word that is taking you there. And if the truth tells you to stay somewhere when you want to go, stand firm, but only stand as long as the word of God and the truths of God's word are telling you to stand. Rest your loyalty, not upon men. Men will fail you. Not upon a church. A church will fail you. Not upon a pastor. A pastor will fail you. Not upon a philosophy. A philosophy will fail you. Not upon a government. A government will fail you. Not upon an institution. Institutions will fail you. Rest your loyalty upon the truth. And what is truth? Well, Jesus said, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said in his prayer for us in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And if you remain loyal to Christ, you are you will do so by remaining loyal to his word. And if you are loyal to his word, you will not be led astray. Thy word, David wrote, not David, the psalmist wrote, excuse me, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Is truth enough for you? It should be. Every time. Or have you been caught up in the spirit of the age? By what standard do you live? Do you live firmly planted in the unchanging principles of God's word? Or is your worldview susceptible to the deceits of your feelings and the philosophies of of the world around you rather than after Christ. So first, don't get confused about the nature of Jesus' advent, either first or last. Second, truth is the standard by which all things must be judged and all loyalties must be formed. Third, you are greater than He. You are greater than He. Who's He? You are greater than John. You have something John never had. John will be in heaven. We know this. 
John was a great prophet, the greatest of prophets. We know this. I'm not saying that you're more pious than John. I'm not saying you're more godly than John. I'm not saying you're a better person than John. I'm not saying you're more talented than John. I'm not saying you're more skilled than John. I'm not saying you're in a better position than John. Physically, what I am telling you is that you are sitting here today in Christ. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so you have something that John could not have, did not have. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the point. Take note of this. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Did you notice the contrast? That's something that you have. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Do you see what you have? You were sometimes alienated. You were sometimes enemies. But now something has happened to you. You've been reconciled. Paul would write in Colossians, continue in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, and say this, For in Him, that's Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye, that's you, believers, are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is you. This is me. This is the power that you and I live in every day. We have been reconciled to God. We live free from guilt and shame and condemnation. We live in triumph. We live in a spiritual reality that John longed for. We are complete. In a world grasping for meaning, you lack nothing. In a world longing for love, you lack nothing. In a world aching for purpose, you lack nothing. In a world crying out for peace, you lack nothing because Christ lives in you and you are complete in Him. John couldn't say that because Christ didn't live in Him. And so it is that you even if you are the very least in the kingdom of heaven, are greater than he. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we come to a crossroads. You are greater than he. But do you live it? We live in a culture that has no problem accessing food. Right? Our culture has no problem accessing food. My children wake up in the morning. My son goes down to the kitchen table to scavenge whatever might have been left behind by his sisters the night before when they wanted their snack before bed. But even if there's nothing there for him to scavenge, he knows that breakfast is coming. He comes up and he says, Mom and Dad, I'm hungry. And he says, I'm hungry with complete confidence that there's something we can do about that. But you know it's not like that in a lot of the world. And if you've ever been somewhere where they have lacked food, they've lacked proper nutrition, where children have not been able to get the food that they need, where children die of starvation, it begins to change your perspective, doesn't it? It begins to change your perspective on the fact that 40% of the food produced in America is thrown away. That 31 million tons of food are added to American landfills each year. 
while in other parts of the world children die of starvation. And we say, if only we could understand and appreciate what we have, that on a Thanksgiving meal where we gorge ourselves and stuff ourselves with food, that we eat more in one meal than many children may see in weeks in other parts of the world. Shouldn't, and that, that brings us to a place of appreciation. Well, may I bring this concept into the spiritual? Imagine being Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, being a man of godliness, of faith, a man who has sold himself out and writing about the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow, 1 Peter 1. Wondering what and what manner of time the Spirit of God which was in you did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Only to be told that you're writing these things not for you, but unto them who would see it. But unto us it was written the things that were reported Unto them. That they were writing not for them, but for us. And the prophets, as they're writing, would say, Wow, what a special time. Messiah will suffer. And then there will be a glory that follows. And I don't understand that, but it's going to happen. And that glory that shall follow, imagine the generation that gets to partake in that glory. Imagine the generation that gets to partake in the glory of the Messiah after He has suffered and then He is glorified. And they crave for it. And they say, imagine a time when Christ's glory will shine only to realize that all of that craving and all of that longing that they long for, you wake up with it every morning if you are in Christ. On a daily basis, you wake up with that power. You wake up with that glory. You wake up in the glory of the resurrection power. Because Christ is in you and you are complete in Him. And you know what? Not only do we live with it on a daily basis, but... Many of us ignore that power on a daily basis. When troubles come, we don't flee to that power, the resurrection power of Christ. We flee to the same solutions as the world, the same medical solutions, the same financial solutions, the same charitable solutions, the same experts. We suffer the same emotional problems. We suffer the same interpersonal problems. We suffer the same financial problems. We have the same resentments as the world. We have the same relationship issues as the world. And we are told that the Bible is, di- is the difference. And we're told that Christ in us is the difference. And we're told that that makes it, that that makes a difference. And we're told, and we tell the world that the difference between you and us is Christ lives inside of us. But on any given day and in any given situation, we don't look or act or think. And the outcome is so very much the same as the world. The power of God collects dust on our metaphorical shelves. The metaphorical shelves of our very meager spiritual existence. And the prophets of old shake their metaphorical heads, since we're talking metaphorically, and wonder at the wasting of the thing which they had longed for and craved and could only but taste through the writings of the Spirit of God through them. We have it. We don't even know what we have. And far too often we don't even care. But if you are in Christ, you are greater than He. Fourth and final point. To resist Christ in any context is to resist your own blessedness. Luke describes two groups in this text. The people and the publicans and the scribes and the lawyers. He states that the one group justified God and the other group rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And the way Luke writes this is so insightful because he doesn't state that only one group understood Jesus' message. He doesn't state that one group identified the truth while the other group missed the truth. He doesn't say one group had access to the truth while the other group didn't get access to the truth. 
Both groups heard the same stuff. Both groups saw the same miracles. Both groups had access to John and his preaching of righteousness and of repentance unto the kingdom of God. Both groups had access to Jesus and his miracles and his preaching of repentance unto the kingdom of God. And it's not that one group was at a disadvantage to another. It's not that one group got it and the other one didn't. It's that one group believed it and the other one didn't. It's that one group received the truths of God's word and the other group rejected the counsel of God against themselves. It's not that they didn't have it. It's that they didn't want it. And in doing so, they very much acted against their own self-interest. See, because there's coming a day and there's coming a day when we will stand before God and he will judge us and he will judge us by the standard of whether we have placed our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ or whether we have not. And on that day, there are those who have rejected, who have accepted the truth of God, and there are those that rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And there's coming a day when you as a believer will stand before the Almighty God, and you will see a pile of wood, hay, and stubble of gold, silver, and precious stones. And the fire of God's wrath will burn on that pile and everything that you did for Christ will remain and everything you did for yourself will burn up and on that day you will see just how much you trusted the counsel of God and just how much you rejected the counsel of God against yourself and Jesus said to John blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me blessed is the man who does not stumble at the truths of God's word Have you stumbled? Where have you stumbled? Are you, in any context, whether it's unto salvation or whether it's unto sanctification, in what ways are you rejecting the counsel of God against yourself? And know that it is against yourself. Know that you are working against your best interests as you do it. Four points. Don't get confused about the nature of Jesus' advent, first or last. Truth is the standard by which all things must be judged and all loyalties must be formed. You are greater than He. And then finally, to resist Christ in any context is to resist your own blessedness. Has the Holy Spirit placed His thumb on something in your life? Some change? Some error? Some Has He confirmed something? Has He patted you on the back and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant? Whatever the Lord is doing, would you respond to Him today? The Bible tells us that the humble man is the man that Christ exalts. If as you're examining your heart, there's something in it that's a problem, would you humble yourself before the Lord so that he may lift you up? Let's close in prayer.